Hello, and welcome to Partners in Diplomacy, a podcast series exploring the service, sacrifice, and adventure of life as a Foreign Service family member. I'm your host, Bonnie Miller, and we're joined by John Warner, who specializes in administration, client relations management, and fundraising, and who has accompanied his Foreign Service wife, Joya Starks, to postings in Africa and the Middle East. Welcome, John, and thank you for sharing your story with us today. Thank you for having me, Bonnie. I'm really excited to be here. Good. So let's start with your childhood. You were born in 1988 in Bridgetown, Barbados. So what was life like for you growing up in that island nation in the 1990s and early 2000s that everybody dreams about life on the beach? What was it like for you being there? Um, so I would say that I had a pretty average childhood. Um, I'm the last of three children. So I have an older brother and an older sister. Uh, my mother was a primary or elementary school teacher. And my dad was a topographer for the Ministry of Agriculture in Barbados. Um, so we grew up in a pretty semi-rural area in Barbados. And as such, we spent a lot of time outdoors. So we would play cricket, um, if you know what that is. <laughs> um, we play soccer or what we would call football, volleyball, basketball. Um, you know, So what, whichever sport was popular um, on television at the time, we would play. Um, and we spent a lot, a lot of time at the beach. And, you know, while we were outside, we would obviously take advantage of the, the flora and fauna in Barbados. So, you know, we would, you know, climb mango trees and, you know, um, pick coconuts, not steal, but, you know, take chicken cane, <laughs> you know, papaya trees. So we really, really had a, a, a good childhood. But there was also a very um, big American influence as well. So, you know, we were really into the the hip hop culture in, in America. So we tried to dress like the rappers and we listened to all the popular um, rap artists like, you know, Busta Rhymes, Nas, Jay-Z, except for on Sundays because um, our mother made sure that we were in church on Sundays and <laughs> listening to gospel um, exclusively. So I grew up pretty evangelical Christian, but I would say that in a nutshell, it was a relatively typical middle-class Caribbean childhood. So it sounds pretty idyllic with being outside in nice weather and going to the beach all the time and kind of a, a hybrid cultural existence, too, between the evangelical Christian Barbados culture and the American hip hop culture. So that's pretty interesting. Uh, and then you attended the University of uh, the West Indies in Barbados, and you earned your bachelor's degrees in humanity, and then you went on for your master's degree in regional integration studies. So what is regional integration, and how did you intend to use your education in your profession? So basically, regional integration is the process by which two or more nation states um, decide to come together for a common goal. So this can be for security, it could be for economic gain. It could be for um, cultural affiliations. So, um, you know, like a, a common market or a free trade agreement, federal arrangement is, um, they're all examples of regional integration. Um, so instead of viewing the world as individual nation states, um, we view them in terms of regional arrangements. So we studied the European Union, um, the African Union, and the, you know, the sub-regional bodies that they have. We studied NAFTA as well. And we also focused on the, the power dynamics that exist within um, regional integration or regional arrangements. So, you know, we often wondered if two unequally sized states can be um, can fully integrate um, for the mutual benefit of each other. So, so I, I did an internship at the European Union delegation to Barbados and the Eastern Caribbean. Um, so I kind of envisioned myself working 
in that capacity in some kind of similar regional body. So like um, the OAS, OECS, or CARICOM are within the international development. However, um, I don't know in, in what capacity because I met Joya soon after I finished uh, my master's. So I, I don't know what I would have been. <laughs> so meeting Joya uh, totally changed your life and the trajectory of your profession. So tell us how you met her and then how you decided to get married and join the Foreign Service as a Foreign Service family member. Um, so I met Joya in December of 2012. Um, she was serving as a consular officer at the U.S. Embassy in Bridgetown. You know, they say that you can tell an officer's first post by the, the nationality of their of their spouse. So um, I think that that saying holds true for us because, you know, that was her first post. So we met at an after work event and we had a mutual friend there. You know, there was good dancing, a couple of beverages, great conversation. <laughs> um, so we exchanged numbers and, you know, the rest is history. Um, I think we met at the right time in my personal and professional life because um, I had just finished my master's. I didn't really have a career yet. Um, so there was nothing nothing really tying me down to Barbados at the time. But I also had a travel bug. Um, the first time I traveled, I was 10, I went to London. And I also lived in Colombia um, for an extended period in 2009. So the idea of traveling and living in a different country, moving every couple of years, never really intimidated me. Um, so when she said that she was moving to Djibouti, I was like, okay, let's go. I didn't know where it was, <laughs> what it was going to be like, but I was like, yep, let's go. So you were game and, and it was a, a good time in your life. And it sounds like it was kind of an instant connection with her and being married to an American was not an impediment. And you're like, let's go. I'm young and I'm adventurous and uh, we're going to move on. So your first foreign service post foreign post as the husband of an American foreign service officer was in Djibouti uh, in East Africa, tiny little country, which was from 2014 when you just got married for two years until 2016. So what was it like there? And did you find a job? What kind of work did you do? So Djibouti was very, very interesting to say the least. As you may or may not know, it's a predominantly Muslim um, country. Um, actually, I can still remember the call to prayers every every Friday in the neighborhood from the neighborhood mosque. But it was ironically a, a melting pot of cultures. So because of the military um, presence there, you know, you had Americans, German, French, um, you know, they, they're pretty, um, they spoke Arabic, they're ethnically Somali, they're Italians, Indians, um, Ethiopians, Yemeni. And this was evident within the food options that you could find there. So you could find pretty much any kind of food you wanted in Djibouti. And it was the first and last time that I, um, or last place that I, I will try um, camel meat or camel camel steak. <laughs> so I'm sorry. Um, it was it was not your favorite food. <laughs> no, not at all, not at all. <laughs> what what does it taste like? So it, it's like beef, but very lean. So it's like a cardboard texture type of beef, if if you can imagine that. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, not my favorite. Okay. What what was your favorite? What did you like? Um, so, you know, th they had a pretty heavy French influence. So, um, you know, the the steak with um, the the blue cheese and the Roquefort sauce or blue cheese sauce. Um, you know, they had like um, West African options as well. Really good Indian food, surprisingly. Um, they had Yemeni fish that they would roast in an oven, a brick oven, sorry. Um, so, you know, really, really, really good food. Yeah, and how's your French language? Pas mal, pas mal. Um, so uh, <laughs> um, I, I did a bit of French before moving there, but it's not it's not that great now, actually. 
And what is the main language that they speak there? Arabic? French and um, Arabic and Somali. I would say French and Somali, actually. Okay, so you could get by on French. Oh, definitely, and definitely, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> did you have a job there? What kind of work did you do while Joya was working at the embassy? Um, so I worked on the military base there um, called Camp Monnier. That that was a joint command between um, you know Navy, you know Army, Air Force. Um, so I worked on um, I worked at Navy Federal Credit Union. So you know the bank and pretty much most of the buildings were in repurposed shipping containers. So I mean you can imagine me with a, a bachelor's in arts, master's in um, social sciences, now working in, in finance. So I had no clue what I was doing at first. Um, I think it was pretty bad initially, but I, you know, I was a quick learner. I was, I was really open to, you know, the job, and I quickly moved up um, afterwards. So, as you can imagine, I'm now in a, in a weird, semi-military, semi-state department arrangement, but it allowed me to make friends on on both sides. So I really have um, really good friends from, you know, the military and from state department from being in, in Djibouti. So in the State Department, in the Foreign Service, you have to be flexible and you have to be a quick learner and you have to adjust fast. So it sounds like you made it and you learned about the financial aspects. And uh, did you work there the whole two years? Yeah, yeah. I worked there the whole two years um, until I had to leave, unfortunately. Um, but, you know, I, I obviously maintained, maintained good relations with, um, with the company, with a very, a very amicable um, departure. Did you become a U.S. citizen, and how did that happen, and was that advantageous for a foreign-born spouse to have a U.S. passport if they're married to a foreign service officer? So um, I actually became a U.S. citizen while I was at post in Djibouti. Um, So it was in March of 2016. So because we were at post, we were able to utilize the um, expedited naturalization process. So instead of it taking maybe, I don't know, two to five years to become a citizen, it only took me about six months, actually. I would say if, if you're at post and you're looking to, to become a citizen, this is the time to, to do it. And I don't re- quite recall the process or the timeline, but I know it's, it's definitely a lot faster than doing it in the, in the U.S. But yeah, um, it's very, very advantageous because now I could um, you know, get a, a U.S. clearance, a government clearance, and that opened a lot more doors for, for jobs and still opens doors for job, jobs in the future. And so can you be a dual citizen with Barbados as well, or did you have to give that up? Yeah, I didn't have to give it up, at least at least not yet. <laughs> okay, well, it sounds like if you haven't by now, then you'll be able to keep it and for whatever uh, advantage that has. But it sounds like carrying a U.S. passport is, is a good thing and for personally and professionally. Yep, definitely. So in 2016, then you left Djibouti and you moved to Eswatini, which most of our listeners will know as Swaziland in southern Africa, kind of ensconced by South Africa, surrounded by, and and you were there for three years from 2016 to 2019. And so I think our listeners will be particularly interested in your work with an NGO there that is helping young men in local communities. So if you could tell us about that, what you did, how you got into that, we'd like to know. So Swaziland is a, you know, is, is a small country, population of a million, um, you know, but they're in very, very nice game parks, um, is, is really safe. People are nice, great for hiking, for burden, extremely affordable. And there's a, a, a pretty um, heavy British influence as well. So I was able to find a, a cricket team there, actually, and I played cricket for a couple of years. 
And we were, we were like a, a three-hour drive from Maputo and Mozambique, and then like a, a three-and-a-half drive to Johannesburg, a two-hour drive to Mpumalanga, and that's where Kruger National Park is. So we were able to get away, you know, every time we got a bit like store crazy um, in Swaziland. Yeah, so I volunteered with a male mentoring organization called Kwaga Invoza, um, which means building a man in the local um, Siswati language. So they did gender-based violence and HIV prevention um, programming with men and boys. Um, the premise was if men are more likely to per- perpetrate gender-based violence and if they're more likely to have you know, multiple partners, why not target them with um, these types of programs? My, my role was pri- um, primarily administrative. Um, I was a resource mobilization officer, uh, which means that I wrote pretty much most of their um, um, grant proposals. But I also um, assisted with some, some programming on the, on the ground. So um, one of my favorite programs, um, which you saw, was called um, Walk a Mile in Her Shoes. So it was a one-mile march around the city against gender-based violence, where men um, were encouraged to, to wear heels um, during this march. So <laughs> I don't think I've, I've worn heels since then. <laughs> but I mean, it still amazes me how women can, can wear heels every day, because my feet were hurting after, for sure. <laughs> That is really amazing, and it, it's literally walking a mile in her shoes, but also helping these young men understand where women are coming from and women's feelings and being maybe less power-hungry and more empathic toward women. Yep, definitely, definitely. And it also, I mean, the, the, the program itself or, or the organization itself also helped me to, you know, to improve my, my, my personal life, so... I started to challenge and continue to challenge some of the ways that I, you know, I thought and, you know, the ways that, that I view manhood and masculinity. That's interesting. What what age, what was your target age group that you were working with? Primarily 15 to, I want to say 15 to 25, if I'm not mistaken. And what what is the usual age that men would get married in Eswatini? I, I want to say around um, 30, but I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure. Honestly, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Uh, so while well, you're getting in young um, as they're shaping their attitudes and as they're dating. Precisely. They focus a lot on, on consent and because Swaziland is, or Eswatini is still pretty traditional. Um, so there's a lot of feelings of ownership when you start dating a, um, a Swazi woman, um, especially because there's a, a practice called labola. So you, you pretty much give the, the bride's family money or, or, you know, cows for her hand in marriage. So, I mean, after you hand, you know, this money or, or cows over, there's a sentiment of ownership towards the bride. So the, the organization worked to, to kind of dismantle some of these ideas of, of relationship and, and, and masculinity. That existed or exists. That's really interesting. And did they work on communication techniques and conflict resolutions? What to do when a husband and wife or a dating couple don't agree on something? Yeah, as I said, a lot of their programs were heavily focused on combating gender-based violence. So I, I remember one part of the curriculum they were asking the boys, "Is it okay to to hit your wife if she if she doesn't agree with you, or can your wife like say no to you?" Or because I think there was also a sentiment that that your wife is almost one of your your children. So I, I think um, it really focused on um, communicating between partners or communication between partners. That's really important. And these young men will then become husbands and become fathers 
and communicate these values to their sons and their daughters too, letting their daughters know that they're important and that they're equal, but letting their sons know that gender-based violence is not right, but also not just physical violence, but this power thing and talking in a certain way to their spouses and just using their power in a, a way that is not good for the relationship at all. So it sounds like you're really inculcating some really interesting values. And what about the HIV AIDS part of it? So they focus um, heavily on condom use and voluntary male uh, medical circumcision as well um, as a preventative measure. There was a lot of stigma, or is a lot of stigma, I should say, with men going to get HIV tests. You know, I remember reading one article where, I wasn't in, in Swaziland per se, but I think it was in Malawi or Mali or something where there was the idea that if you had had sex with a virgin, you could cure yourself from HIV. Those kind of, I don't want to say crazy, but uh, unbelievable ideas of, you know, uh, uh, surrounding HIV prevention and, and men's health, I would say. So we really encourage men to go get tested, to use use condoms if they're going to have um, um, um if they're going to have multiple partners. So I think that was basically the crux of their, their messaging. Right. So I have to mention that because of your work with this NGO that was doing such great stuff in Eswatini, you were the recipient of the 2018 Avis Bolin Award through AFSA at the State Department and well-deserved because that was a really interesting project that uh, had some great repercussions. And I, I'm wondering also about whether it could be replicated in other places. It seems like I've worked on trafficking in a lot of places and trafficking prevention, that this could be replicated in, in other countries in helping men to achieve more kind of gender equity and, and better relationships with the opposite sex. Yeah, I mean, I, I think is a the overarching themes that we could could tackle in, in any society. So, for instance, in Swaziland, we utilize um, culture and tradition a lot to get across our, our programming. So, I think if we adapt it to um, you know different contexts and in a different country, we should be able to achieve the same results. So that was pure volunteer work. You did not get paid at all, and and you wrote professional grants and you did fundraising. Um, were you able also to work in Eswatini? Even though I wasn't paid from the volunteer work, I was able to go to like all expenses paid trip to Bali, Indonesia, um, to, to present some research findings that the organization, um, you know, that they they came up with. I also published a book chapter in a, a European journal um, on feminism. So even though it wasn't paid, it allowed me to to keep my CV active, which which was very very important for me. But I wasn't able to work on the the local economy because most people in jobs there had to speak. English and the local language, and I did not speak the local language. But I was the newsletter editor at the embassy um, in Swaziland, and I also got a um, a job as an assistant GSO um, later later on in, in the tour. Everybody needs the GSO. <laughs> when we come back to America, we miss the GSO. For those of you who don't know, the general services officer is the one that fixes stuff around your house. And so it, it's a really important position that we all count on. So we're moving along. When and where was your child born? So we have a, th a three-nager. We call him a three-nager. <laughs> His name is Jonah. Um, so he turned three within the last couple of weeks. So he, he was actually born here in the United States at Virginia Hospital Center. So we came back for his birth in 2018. My wife, Joya, she was 33 weeks when we came back. And luckily, you know, they were able to take us because some hospitals won't take you at 
um, so late in your pregnancy. And obviously, we, we were supported by the State Department as well um, when we got back. So they provided us with housing, and they also um, gave us a layout shipment. So we were able to pack diapers and formula and, um, you know, everything that he needed. I don't remember how, how big the shipment was, but it was definitely helpful. And, you know, six weeks after he was born, we were back on the plane just to Swaziland or Eswatini. So he spent his first few months there, which he won't remember, but he will become a third culture kid for as long as Joya stays in the foreign service. So he'll be moving around from country to country and experimenting with different cultures and different languages. His journey will be very interesting. Yep, definitely. That's one of the, the biggest benefits of having a, or being in a foreign service family, that your kid will be exposed to to so many more things than his than his peers would if um, in the United States, you know. So he's going to hopefully pick up Spanish when we, you know, when we go to our next post. Um, he's going to just have a different worldview than I think a lot of the other um, children in the United States or, or even in Barbados as well. Right. So now he's um, spent most of his life in Washington, D.C. You've been here for the last two years. And although the United States is home to Joya, it's a foreign country for you. So how is life in Washington, D.C. for you and what kind of work are you doing here? Life in D.C. is great, very, very expensive, but but it, it, it is great. <laughs> my, my sister, um, she's an endocrinologist in, in Atlanta. But all, all during her like medical school and you know fellowship residency, we would come to visit and throughout the years. So um, so America is not, even though it's a foreign country, it's not it's not new. It's it's pretty familiar to me. So I also spent a, a stint here before we moved to Djibouti. Um, so we spent about a year here while Joy was in language. So it kind of you know prepared me mentally for what. I was getting back into when I moved back. I mean, I love it here. Um, the pace of life is a lot faster, but you know, you have everything at your fingertips. You have Uber, DoorDash, um, Lyft. You have Grubhub. You get whatever you need, you, you can you can get in America. So that that is really um, something I could get used to, <laughs> or I got used to actually. But I also love that Jonah, um, our son, will be spending some very fundamental years here in America. That is very important. And it's also a short flight back to, to Barbados as well to see my family. Right. So that's definitely doable. So you've been working here for the last two years. What kind of work have you been doing? Um, so now I'm a ACA specialist at Navy Federal Credit Union. Um, so that's the automated clearinghouse specialist. So the connections that I made in Djibouti actually set me up to get this job um, relatively easily. So um, as you can see, it came full circle. Even though I didn't expect to work in, on the base in Djibouti, I had no idea about finances, but you know it was able to help me, um, you know, get a different role here um, back in the states. So for some reason, it seems like I'm getting pulled back into to finance. I don't know why. <laughs> well, so you have that on your resume, and you have other skills too, as well as your adaptability. So, what's your plan for the next chapter of your lives in Bogota, Colombia, for next year? And uh, are you already fluent in Spanish? Do you speak some Spanish to prepare for that posting? So right now, I don't. I don't know yet. I don't know what I'm going to do exactly in Colombia. Right now, I'm working from home, so there's a slight possibility of me doing the same job um, in Bogota. Very, very, very small possibility. So I think more than likely I'm going to be on the job hunt within the next few months. But luckily, I have some level of, of proficiency or some proficiency in Spanish. My plan is to try to get a Spanish score on file to be able to seek employment um, at the embassy if possible. Um, luckily, I'm, I'm part of the Foreign Service Family Reserve Corps. So it means that my, my clearances um, have stayed active. So that should make um, em, you know employment a little easier at the embassy. But I'm also um, really entertaining the possibility of working on the local market as well. So 
anything um, to keep my, my resume active, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do. Yeah, so a lot of options are open to you. I hope so. Great. So, John, do you have any final thoughts, lessons learned, words of wisdom or advice for spouses and especially foreign-born spouses whose partners are considering a career in the Foreign Service? And what would be realistic expectations of a career in the Foreign Service for a family? I would say that, first of all, um, the State Department owes you nothing. I think that a lot of my frustrations um, and you know periods of unhappiness and resulting mistakes were because I believe that I was owed a job or owed. State Department will help you find a job to help you to be happy, but it's up to you to create your own happiness. Even if you're at a, a hard post, you have to create opportunities for yourself and you have to make yourself happy and comfortable wherever you are. Also, you have to be open-minded. Um, you may not get exactly where uh, you know the job you're looking for. You may not get the you know the housing you're looking for, but you know you have to be open-minded and you know um like for me keeping my resume active was a big deal so that's why i, I volunteered even though i wasn't paid obviously I, I would have loved to be paid but i had the long game in mind you know because i know coming back to the states or even going to a different post having a, a three-year gap in my cv doesn't look doesn't look good so another thing is that you may feel lonely as a foreign born spouse um you may feel sometimes that you don't fit in with you know everyone else at, at post but you know it's important to to be yourself and to be authentic um because you're the representation of america uh, or what america strives to be so you're just people from which is people from all walks of life coexisting in, a, in one space and lastly just has have fun um you know take advantage of the lifestyle i think we're in a, a unique and a very fortunate space where we could you know move to a different country every couple of years and you know, and, and just experience, you know, different cultures. Um, you know, people have to pay a lot of money to, to travel. I think we need to, you know, have fun and take advantage. Yeah, I think your advice really echoes a lot of what I've heard. Um, you are number 20 interview out of 20 for 2021 year. And I've heard especially about being open-minded and enjoying where you are, blooming where you're planted, and also volunteer work, that sometimes it can be more meaningful even than having a job. And it sounds like in Eswatini, uh, what you contributed to that culture, what you contributed to that community was really important for you, as well as having something to put on your resume. So that worked for you. Yeah, yeah, it definitely did. Um... As I said, I was a little unhappy at first um, when I got there because I couldn't, there was a hiring freeze and I, you know, I, I wasn't finding employment at the embassy. Being at home, especially, you know, as, as a man and you want to provide for your family, that kind of stuff, it was hard. But um, as I said, like, you know, when life gives you lemons, you make lemonade. So um, I, I really took that to heart and I, I tried to, you know, keep active and I tried to, you know, it was a unique time to be able to to volunteer and to you know, and to help other people, even if I wasn't being paid, you know, I don't know if I'll ever get the opportunity again. You know, we have Jonah now, I, I may need to, to make more money, you know, make money now. So I think that was, it was really good that I was able to take advantage of that. Okay, well, very interesting. So John, on behalf of our listeners, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your fascinating experiences. Thank you, Bonnie. It was a pleasure to be here. Thank you for listening. If you are curious to learn more about the lives of Foreign Service family members, subscribe and listen to additional episodes in our Partners in Diplomacy series. To learn more about the experiences of America's diplomats and diplomacy, visit our website at adst.org or check us out on Twitter and Facebook. The Partners in Diplomacy podcast is funded by the Una Chapman Cox Foundation. Our theme music is We Are One by Scott Holmes. Our assistant producer is Sumaya Ishrat. 
Our producers are James Fowler and Mark Rincon. Our audio engineering and post-production are provided by James Fowler and Post Productions. My name is Bonnie Miller. Until next time. 